Too much money chasing too few goods. That's the definition of inflation. But what is hyperinflation? Where does it come from? What are its effects and how do you stop it? And specifically, how do you stop it in Venezuela? My name is Richard Miles. I'm the host of 35 West. And here to educate us this morning is Professor Ricardo Hausman, Director of the Center for International Development at Harvard's JFK School of Government. Also joining me is Moises Rendon, Associate Director of the Americas Program at CSIS and our resident Venezuela expert. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, uh, Dr. Hausman, I, I was wondering if we could start just by sort of defining terms here. I mean, I think everyone basically knows what inflation is, but hyperinflation is it's kind of a special category. So could you briefly explain for us, you know, what exactly is hyperinflation how does it arise? And then, you know, are, are there other, there are, there are clearly other historical examples, and maybe if you could describe those so that our, our listeners understand what we're talking about. Sure. The official or the historical definition of hyperinflation is uh, inflation that is more than 50% a month, uh, or about 9% a week. And, um, and that's, uh, that's sort of like a statistical definition of hyperinflation. That, that's sort of like orders of magnitude uh, higher than say you know 10% 15% 20% inflation which is i mean i think the us record is something that happened in the 70s and reached into the teens this is sort of like a, a, you would get that inflation in about 10 days in, instead of a year so it's a very very rapid increase in in prices and it's always associated uh, with a, a loss of control of the amount of money in the economy that for some reason uh, the government is 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 facing a very very large gap between its tax revenues and its spending, and uh, since it needs to do that to pay for that spending, it just prints the money, and the amount of money in the economy starts growing very significantly. And then people knowing that there is a pile of worthless money coming down the pike. Uh, they they try to run away from that money, and that sort of like accentuates uh, the problem. I would stress that um, in the case of Venezuela, uh, this uh, hyperinflation it doesn't come alone. It comes also with a hyper depression. Uh, for um, the Venezuelan collapse in output is about twice as large as the U.S. Great Depression. It's about twice as large as uh, the decline in output during the Spanish Civil War. It's, it's about twice as large as the collapse of output in Greece recently. Uh, it's much, much bigger than anything that ever happened in the Americas. Now, mind you, in the, in the Great Depression, uh, you know, output collapsed enormously, uh, but there was deflation. There was no inflation. So it's not that these things necessarily come together. In the case of Venezuela, what we need to understand is that it's a hyperinflation mixed with a hyperdepression. Well, that's a that's an interesting point. I, I hadn't thought about it, but you're exactly right. This isn't just the question or just the problem of the government printing too much money. It's the fact that nobody in Venezuela or very few people are producing actually anything of value now. So you get it from both both ends. So a, a few days ago, um, last week to be specific, on August 17th, the, the Maduro government announced a series of measures that supposedly are supposed to deal with hyperinflation. Could you describe some of those steps that they announced and and give your assessment? Do you think any of them are going to work 
or are they going to make this situation worse? Okay, so let, let me start by telling you my understanding of what is the nature of, of this crisis that expresses itself both in hyperinflation and hyperdepression. I would say it has two fundamental elements. The first one is that they took away the invisible hand of the market uh, by expropriating large swaths of the economy, by imposing draconian price controls, exchange controls, import controls, profit controls, labor controls over the rest of the economy. Uh, they eliminated this mechanism whereby, you know, if somebody has a need, somebody else has an opportunity. If people want toilet paper, somebody finds that making toilet paper is profitable. They don't find it profitable because they cannot secure the foreign exchange to make it happen. They cannot price it at a, at a price that, um, that would make them recover costs, etc. So, so the first element of this crisis is this destruction of the market mechanism. The second element of the crisis is is a dramatic foreign exchange shortage. Uh, the government went through a spectacular oil boom uh, between 2004 and 2014 when the price of oil skyrocketed to over $100 a barrel. And they used that period to borrow like crazy. Since they had a lot of money, they were sort of like credit worthy. And instead of saving for, for a rainy day, they just went out and borrowed like crazy. And, and at some point in time, market said, gee, Venezuela has too big a debt when the price of oil was still above 100. And then after that, so that triggered a recession. And then in 2013 and then in 2014, uh, the price of oil collapsed. And, and the government responded uh, by, by essentially clamping down on um, private sector imports. And, and by doing that, they starved uh, uh, the economic system from raw materials, intermediate inputs, spare parts, and output just collapsed. And as output collapsed, tax revenues collapsed because obviously, uh, you know, you have taxes on imports, you have taxes on, on output, and, and the government's ability to tax the economy just dwindled to be more precise. In 2014, non-oil tax revenues were something like $8 billion. In the year to March of this year, they were $1.1 billion. So the tax base just disappeared. And the government, you know, even though they imposed a draconian cut in public sector real wages and pensions, they were left with a huge deficit that they just had to print the money for. And, and, and they, they were able to print money to the tune of something like $4 billion a year. So, so not the full decline in, in tax revenue. So, so that's the context. So two, two, two sources of problems. The first one is, is the destruction of, of the invisible hand, the destruction of the basic economic freedoms that allows a, a market system to operate. And the second one is this severe foreign exchange shortage. Now, what, what Maduro is going to announce last, last week on, on, on August 17th, it doesn't deal with any of these two problems. In, in fact, it makes some of them worse. So it doesn't have the elements to fix the problem. So what did he announce? <clears throat> the first thing he announced is a super depreciation of the currency. The, uh, the price of the dollar in, in the official exchange rate will go up by a factor of something like 25. It was um, 240,000 per, 
per dollar, they moved it from two hundred forty thousand dollars to six million. Incredible. So, so that's that's the first thing. The second thing is that they moved the 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 minimum wage from five million to one hundred eighty million. So that's an increase of thirty six times. Um, uh, third is that they announced uh, some measures to increase. A tax revenue. So they jacked up the value-added tax from 12% to 16%. They imposed a tax on financial transactions. And they announced that they were going to increase a gasoline prices from its current price. A, the current price is a, a something like a one and a half million gallons per dollar. Uh, they they wanted to jack it up to sort of like international prices, which would be something like, uh, you know, $2 mm-hmm. uh, a gallon. In addition, they announced that uh, this wage increase, which is a factor of 36 or something, that wage increase is for the first 90 days will be paid by the government. Everybody's wages, the public sector wages, the private sector wages, even the informal sector wages, it will all be paid by the government starting September 1st. And until September 1st, they'll give a special bonus uh, to pretty much 17 million people uh, that are in their system having what they call a fatherland card. So what does this all add up to? By the way, in, in addition, they impose draconian price controls. Uh, they told the private sector that if they increased prices, uh, they would be criminally liable. Uh, they posted some prices, and they told the population uh, to call the price police uh, if they find any, any merchant selling above these official prices, and they've put uh, already a few people in jail because of that. So none of so, this is going to encourage the private sector at all? <laughs> it, it, it's, not, it's not going to say, gee, this is the time to bring money back to Venezuela or something. So, but, but the important thing is the following. There's a huge announced increase in spending, because now the government is going to be responsible for the whole nation's wage bill, when up to now, uh, they couldn't afford to pay uh, the government wage bill uh, at ridiculously low salaries uh, without printing money uh, at the rate that would cause hyperinflation. So now they are committing themselves to pay much higher wages, not just to their employees, but to everybody in the country. And that starts now. Taxes, well, are, you know, they have to pass a law, they have to implement it administratively. That will happen sometime in the fourth quarter of this year. And gasoline prices, they said that they would raise them at the end of September. So right now, what people are seeing is that the government is committing itself to a huge increase in spending, and they cannot see how they're going to make this huge increase in spending without printing more money. And in addition, the private sector is seeing a huge increase in cost, both on, on the official exchange rate and on wages, and they cannot see how they can freeze prices uh, without uh, you know, losing the firm, uh, losing their whole cash flow by trying to sell below cost. Uh, so the markets, the foreign exchange market, uh, responded by uh, immediately causing a very large depreciation 
of of the exchange rate in in the parallel markets in the black markets uh, the reports of uh, exchange rate that was supposed to be at six million bolivars to the dollar um, it was trading at between ten and fifteen million uh, bolivars to the dollar in um, in in these uh, parallel markets so um, in, in net, I think that the, the announcements of uh, August 17th will cause an, an acceleration of hyperinflation. Wow. So everyone's going to have to go out and get new calculators that have extra zeros on them, it sounds like, to, to calculate this. Um, Moises, if you could talk, you know, it, it seems like for the last year, every time we talk about Venezuela, we, we say, well, things can't get any worse. <laughs> and unfortunately, we're wrong. They do get worse. Um, and it doesn't seem like the country can can withstand even yet, you know, more economic chaos and catastrophe. Tell us what is going on in the last, say, 30 days. How, how are Venezuelans reacting to this situation? What do they think of Maduro's uh, announcement and steps? What, you know, what is, what is the effect in the country? Thank you, Richard. And thank you, Professor Hausman. It's a pleasure and honor to have you in the CSS podcast. Uh, as Professor Hasman was saying, as monetary policy goes, the, the latest measures announced by Maduro on August 17 are anything but monetary policy, right? This is it, it's not going to provide any benefit of, of the economy or of the people. It will just further paralyze the economy and drive more people out of the country. Venezuela is going through an unprecedented human-made humanitarian crisis and and people are desperate and and are desperate before Friday's announcement but what Friday's announcement is going to do is it's going to increase that economic humanitarian crisis on the ground more businesses are going to close and businesses are not going to be able to pay the the increment of salary that Maduro announced and 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 therefore people are are going to be uh, jobless and this is going to be a massive jobless scenarios um, and 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 therefore, people are going to start fleeing the country in in increasing in in, in an increasing way, and and this is already uh, creating an, a huge impact on neighboring countries like Colombia and Brazil, because uh, as as Venezuela doesn't really have a democratic exit right now, uh, and Venezuela is facing its worst case scenario, which is further collapse. And 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 I remember a year ago we were hosting. Exercise, scenarios exercises in CSIS, and we were predicting that this crisis was going to get worse. It's, it's status quo couldn't continue because we will just see it, the implosion of Venezuela. And this is what we're seeing today, is the literally implosion of a 30 million country, uh, once proud and rich nation who was uh, at some point receiving immigrants from all over from all over the world, but right now the the the, the migrants are fleeing, and 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 we've seen in 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 Colombia, for example, about one hundred twenty thousand people are crossing to Colombia every day. Most of them are going back because they're just getting food, amazing. But these numbers are only going to increase. Some experts are predicting that uh, about one to three million people are going to flee in the next few months. And, and, and that doesn't come to a surprise because the implosion of the economy, the lack of political exits, and the increasing social control mechanism that the Maduro regime is imposing are, are unsustainable. And, and by the way, by the end of this month in August, um, the classes in Venezuela finish. That means many families, many children, many individuals are planning to flee as the classes finish. So we will see 
an increment of the migration flows going out of Venezuela for sure. And there doesn't appear to be any indication that the government is is weakening in a political sense, right? I mean, there was supposedly this assassination attempt a few weeks ago and then followed by a crackdown. But but since then, there, there's no no evidence that we can see, at least, uh, of, a, of a weakening of the regime's hold on the country, right? Correct. At the contrary, the regime is just desperately making um, moves that are just going to get the crisis and the economy much worse, much quicker. And the opposition leaders, many of them have fled the country. And, and the ones that are still in Venezuela are either facing jail, are either banned from running to, for political positions, or their families have been threatened. And uh, so it's, it's a very, very hard repressive environment to deal with from a political point of view. That's why Venezuela doesn't really have a political exit today. And, and that's where the international community should be, should be thinking on that, on that direction. Professor Hasman, um, back to hyperinflation. You know, h- how does this all end? I mean, it, clearly the steps that were announced uh, last week don't even seem to me serious attempts to address the problem. They're, they're more sort of like political cosmetic effects. You, you know, is there anything the Maduro government could do right now that would actually halt the, the hyperinflationary spiral? Um, or, or are we headed to, you know, just a spontaneous dollarization of the economy or barter economy? What, what, what usually happens in situations like this of extreme hyperinflation uh, historically? Well, uh, this hyperinflation officially sort of started in November. Uh, by those standards, this is one of the longest hyperinflations uh, in history. Um, the, I, I, I think that the only way to stop this hyperinflation is to is to um, uh, reestablish uh, uh, the freedoms that are basic to a market economy, uh, so that the private sector would have incentives uh, to supply uh, to cater to other people's needs. And it would need to drastically increase the supply of foreign exchange. I think uh, that would only happen in the context of a political transition uh, towards a new government that would be market-friendly and that would get support from the international community to address in the short run the dollar crisis. If, for example, Maduro were to leave tomorrow and a new democratic government would come in, and would say, you know, we are here to uh, to reestablish uh, the basic democratic and 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 economic freedoms, and uh, the international community would step in with a significant international financial package. Then the government could unify the exchange rate, uh, float the exchange rate, sell in in the market these dollars that would be coming in from international assistance, uh, finance the fiscal deficit through this, uh, these real resources that are coming from abroad, uh, make uh, those, those resources would, on the one hand, uh, finance the fiscal deficit, and the other side of the same coin is that they would finance uh, the dollar needs of the economy, because the government would be paying, say, local wages for teachers and policemen and so on. Uh, they would have to sell those dollars to the private sector uh, in exchange for the local currency to pay those those wages, but those dollars would be used to increase imports uh, that are needed for raw materials, intermediate inputs, and and spare parts to to increase production. So, so so that's what uh, that's what would get uh, the economy going. That's exactly uh, what happened uh, uh, in 1948 with the um, 
Marshall Plan. That is, after the war, people thought in 1945 that the economies of Europe would recover, but there was such a dollar shortage that the economies just kept imploding after the end of the war in Europe. And that's what prompted the U.S. to come up with a Marshall Plan. And the Marshall Plan it worked surprisingly well because it actually addressed this dollar shortage. And once the dollar shortage was addressed, the economies recovered very quickly, and even the capacity of these economies to export and generate their own foreign exchange it was reestablished quite uh, quite quickly. So uh, so that's what would be needed. And that's not going to happen while Maduro is in power. So I've said there's no way of ending this story unless we end Maduro and his regime. So in the meantime, you know, for the Venezuelans that can't flee or won't flee the country, how are they, uh, you know, feeding themselves? I mean, I, I imagine we've already seen the reemergence of a barter economy in some form or another, um, are, are there other mechanisms that sort of keeping uh, people afloat there, keeping you know them, them fed and clothed and housed, or how is that occurring? Well, I think the, the first of all, they're not feeding themselves. They're losing weight. They're losing weight quite dramatically. We we know um, there, there was a 2016 survey where they had lost something like 19 pounds. There's a 2017 survey where they've lost another 15 pounds or so, and and we're waiting for the 2018 survey. So so this is not a stable situation. Uh, one thing that is happening is that there's an increasing flow of remittances, and while the numbers of the money in remittances is not big by in macroeconomic terms, it is very spread out, and there are many families that are they're increasingly having access to to these remittances. We've studied the issue of migration uh, by looking at Twitter. We looked at uh, Twitter is, you know, about 28% of Venezuelans uh, use Twitter. And um, and we, we looked at people who tweeted only from Venezuela in the first quarter of 2017, and we looked at where they were in the world by the first quarter of 2018. And, and we estimated that about 9.7% of Twitter users uh, had left the country uh, in, that, uh, in that year, so that the annual outflow uh, is going at the rate of something like uh, 10% of the population, which is like 3 million people, at least the population of Twitter users. It might be a little bit more biased to, to relative to the total population, but in, in, it's a pretty representative sample. Uh, that process, which is massive and it's ongoing, is, is generating a, a flow back of, of uh, remittances, not in large amounts, as I was saying before, because uh, uh, these people are still very precariously tied to uh, the economies that they're, they're moving into. And these are economies that are not as rich as the economies that they used to go to. So, you know, uh, most of the migrants used to go to uh, the U.S. or Spain, uh, or Panama and Costa Rica. Now, uh, about 24% of them are going to Colombia, which is a poor country, about 5% to Peru, 4% to Ecuador. And interestingly, the new numbers that appear are this, this, this latest wave, about 15% of them are going to Argentina and 15% of them are going to Chile. Uh, these countries are now under this shock of a Venezuelan uh, human wave, and you're starting to see uh, anti-immigration sentiment, and you're starting to see the governments clamping down 
on the immigration of Venezuelans. For example, recently Ecuador and Peru demanded that they present a passport. Now, that sounds like a reasonable request, except that the Venezuelan government doesn't give passports. I'm a Venezuelan citizen. I don't have a passport. They won't give me a passport. So, so getting a passport is not is is a is is in the context of Venezuela is requiring a passport is is just another way of excluding Venezuelans. I would want to press one element that I think is important. The Latin American governments love to sign documents committing themselves to lowly goals. They've signed the Democratic Charter in the OAS. They've never found any conditions worthy of applying it. But they found previously in 1984 the Cartagena Protocol on the rights of refugees. If you read the Cartagena Protocol, it should apply to Venezuelans. But not a single Latin American country has been willing to grant Venezuelans refugee status. They have some of them, the best, better, best of them, have been, been willing to grant them some temporary status to at least allow them to legally stay in the country and have some rights to employment. Uh, but uh, they have not been able to go all the way of, of granting them uh, refugee status. I think that as the situation worsens, we need to talk about this issue. We need, we understand that uh, the countries that are most affected might be the ones that are closer geographically, but the fiscal responsibility, the economic responsibility of catering to refugees should be uh, internationally shared. So we need to call a committee of donors to try to raise funds to help the countries that are absorbing the Venezuelans to be able to pay for the installation costs. These Venezuelans are hardworking uh, individuals with, uh, with skills, with the capacity to contribute. They just need to be allowed to do so, and there might be some temporary costs of absorbing them into the economy. Those costs should be shared by the international community. Um, your reference earlier, Professor Hausman, to the, the Marshall Plan was, was uh, interesting because what it seems to me what Venezuela is going through, has gone through, is like going through a major war and losing. Um, so a, a final question for the both of you. Let, let's uh, assume a best-case scenario that, you know, tomorrow or next week the Maduro government is forced out and you get the return of a, you know, a, a democratic government and they start doing the right thing. Um, things. How long would it take to restore Venezuela to some semblance of a functioning country, given all the damage that has, you know, been done over the last decade or so? It, would it take... You know, five years, ten years, twenty years. What what would you see in terms of a recovery period? Well, let me start by saying first, um, I think that um, uh, you know, to some extent, we have to let bygones be bygones. If you ask myself, if you ask the question, when would Venezuela recover the income level of say 2012, uh, which is barely six years ago? Uh, I would say that a super successful program. Uh, would achieve that by 2030. So it will be a long time to recover uh, past levels of income. Uh, but uh, for the people living there, the important thing is that every day would be better than the previous day, that there will be you know, a path to recovery, a path to hope. Uh, the, the destruction has been massive. Uh, oil production is a third of what it was when Chavez got into power in 1998. 
It's 30% below where it was a year ago. It requires a lot of money to uh, uh, recover oil production, and, and that's money that the country right now doesn't have. It will require opening up the oil industry uh, to private investment, and it will require for people to, to believe that, uh, you know, that, the, that the economy is going in the right, uh, the right direction and that it's stable and so on. Um, uh, I think that uh, bringing inflation down uh, should be a relatively quick uh, process. It should be a matter of months. Uh, but there's a lot of damage to the whole electricity system, to the whole healthcare system. Uh, there's a lot of talent that has left the country. And so uh, it will be a process of years. It will be a, a reconstruction period. But, you know, reconstruction periods uh, generate their own uh, enthusiasm. So I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not uh, discouraged by, by the long, a stretch of time it will take to get back to to levels of income that we have known in the past, but but I think that uh, it it will be a, a challenge. Uh, it will be an interesting challenge to rebuild the country into something better than it ever was. Uh, Moises, you're a good example of of human capital. You know, <laughs> young, educated Venezuelan that left, and I, I think you told me a while back that virtually everyone you know in your in your college class or high school class did the same. So essentially, Venezuela has lost at least one full generation of human capital. If if you had a return to democratic government, uh, how many of you would go back to Venezuela? Or, you know, not everyone's going to go back, obviously, right? How, how, how long would it take before your generation would return to Venezuela? Yeah, no, that's a good question, Richard. Um, right now, the diaspora, the Venezuelan diaspora is about 4 million people living abroad. And as you mentioned, about 90% of my law school class have left the country. However, I think if there is a democratic transition and, and the country start recovering, there is going to be a huge opportunity for many young Venezuelans who have fled, like me, to go back and, and contribute to the rebuilding of the country. The, the country is going to need a, a huge help from the international community, from the from its diaspora, and, and, and there is a, hum, a great human capital that, that can help on that transition. And I think most of us are, are going to um, be interested to, to go back and be part of this historic challenge that, 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 we, that we have in the future. Well, one sign we'll know we'll have succeeded is when we start doing podcasts about how Venezuela is getting better rather than worse. So I, I sincerely hope, you know, at some point on 35 West, we're talking about Venezuela's recovery <laughs> and the speed of recovery. But um, Professor Hausman, thank you very much for joining us uh, today in Moises. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on, and uh, it was a great discussion. So thank you. Thank you, and thank you for your wishes. 